This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. And welcome back to Detroit Air. This is DJ Motormouth coming at you hot, straight from the heart of industrial America, and all those picking us up on the waves. There's still only one story dominating our area, and it's that of the Oakland County child killer. Damn it! Missed a turn thanks to that squawking. Oh, hey, excuse me, lady. Hey, lady. Hey, kid, can you get your mom's attention, why don't you? Mommy? What? What do you think you're doing? Trevor, stay behind me. Come one inch closer. I'll pull my pistol on you, mister. Don't think I won't. Don't think my husband hasn't had me down at the range. Whoa, 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 hey, I didn't mean nothing. I was just looking for directions here. Oh, sure you are. Trevor, Try to remember that license plate. Whoa. Uh, Okay. I'm out of here. What the hell? Detroit, man. What a city. Oh, you're kidding me. Get off my ass. You know how to drive? God! Hey, you wrecked it! This is a new... Who do you think you are? Wait, don't you touch me! Get out of the car, pervert! On the ground! What, what is going on? Citizens arrest you, son of a bitch! Driving your gremlin around town looking for attention, huh? That's what I hear! You're doing all this for show! Well, I got you now! I don't know what the hell you're talking about! Shut up! We'll leave it to the police. You're lucky I'm able to keep my cool at all! Rather blow your head off, right here and now, just like you did to that poor little girl. Whoa, whoa, I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but I... Let me jog your memory. Bill Reeves chose the wrong day and the wrong car to drive through Detroit. Although he was just an innocent bystander, the local population's paranoia turned on him. It was the wrong time to be driving a blue gremlin through Detroit. Luckily, aside from a few bruises, he came out unscathed. 
and with a potential lawsuit on his hands. But his case alone illustrates the state of mind of the Detroit metropolitan area and the Oakland County at large, frayed and unraveling fast. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our second episode on the Oakland County Child Killer. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. And now, back to the case of the Oakland County Child Killer. The confirmed death of 11-year-old Timothy King on March 22, 1977, had made things worse. The uncertainty of his fate was over, but the prognosis continued to darken. The Oakland County child killer had gotten away with it again. First, Mark Stebbins in February 1976, then Jill Robinson in December of the same year, followed by Christine Mihalik and King in 1977. Once again, dumping a child's corpse in plain sight, and once again toying with the hearts of an entire community, leading them on and punishing them for their inability to catch him in the act. Of course, some on the task force, like Chief Assistant State Prosecutor Dick Thompson, believed all of this was soon to end. Right after the body of Timmy King was discovered, state police picked up the number one suspect, the strange man caught on camera at Christine Mihalik's funeral. Benjamin Ward. Unlike Thompson, lead investigator Joseph Kreese and his superior state police captain Robert Robertson were less convinced. So they put Ward under the wire, a polygraph test. Mr. Ward, tell me where you claim to have been on both January 2nd and March 16th. Home, both days. I was home on the 2nd of January and on March 16th. I didn't do this. Please, just respond to my questions. Why were you attending the funeral of Christine Mihalik? It sounds wrong to me now, too, but... Please, just answer the questions. Curiosity. I saw the crowd gathering. I, I just wanted to see what it was about. And when you followed the procession to the graveyard itself? At that point, I needed to see it through. I realized what... who it was for, and, and I stayed to pray. Ward was nothing but cooperative. He allowed state police to search both his car and his home in Detroit. Chief Assistant Thompson. Robbie, give me some good news. We got him, right? I know you've been writing out the wording for the arrest warrant already. Dreaming about it, even. But I told you from the beginning, Joe and I weren't certain on this guy. Hell, don't leave me hanging. Polygraph came back clean. He's telling the truth. He's not our guy. Oh, damn it. You know, I hate those polygraph things. Who knows what the hell they actually mean? We've got to let him go, Thompson. He's not our killer. Who the hell is then? And how the hell is this special task force actually going to get this thing done? We're not out of ideas yet. The half-truth, Robertson knew. The walls were closing in around the task force. It wasn't hopeless. Along with the Detroit News and their own government funding, the task force had a nearly $70,000 price on the killer's head. Any person who brought forward information that led to the capture of the OCCK would be rolling in it. But every lead always seemed false in the end. Just a desperate local trying to make the puzzle pieces fit for their own benefit. 
Many accused their own deadbeat husbands or boyfriends or made random accusations about public officials, teachers, and clergy they didn't like. But nothing was checking out. In the end, all they really had was a terrified community, foaming at the mouth with fear, jumping random drivers and gremlins, and pointing fingers in every direction. They were running out of time and funding. And still there remained an elusive killer on the loose. Then, Detective Sergeant Joseph Kreese received intel from an unlikely source, a local celebrity psychologist by the name of Dr. Bruce Danto. Well, look who it is, the respective Detective Kreese. Glad you finally found the time to stop by. Dr. Danto, quite a home you have here. Oh, this old place? It's all right. The butler just led me into this room. <laughs> He's not a butler. He's a personal assistant, I'd call him. Helps me keep things straight these days. The media comes knocking a lot more than real cops, I imagine? You imagine correctly. But I'd rather take you to the dance any day. <laughs> I'm flattered, really. But I'm here to talk business. I'd have it no other way. Dr. Bruce Danto was a local pseudo-celebrity of sorts. A licensed psychiatrist, he took special interest in police investigations and often wound up providing his own theories on murder mysteries to the media. Some cops thought he was a fame seeker and nothing more. Others, like Robertson and Kreese, saw a willing ally. And if they were the ones to offer the olive branch of cooperation to the good doctor, he might rein in his grander impulses and truly contribute to the case. That said, the first step he took all on his own. In an issue of the Detroit News, Dr. Danto published a column entitled Psychiatrist's Plea to Timothy's Killer. I'm writing to you as a doctor to a patient. You and I know you're acting in a manner foreign to the whole purpose of being a human being, and you're setting into motion your own human response to act against your best interests. I know that this is a game you're playing. I think you were triggered into this death game by the murders of Sheila Strock in 1975 and Cynthia Cadu in 1976, both local girls, both close to your home. I believe your actions against Timothy King, Jill Robinson, Christine Mihalik, and Mark Stebbins are your attempt to replicate the sexual abuse and trauma inflicted upon you in your own childhood. They're your sacrificial lambs. I believe your actions against Timothy King, Jill Robinson, Christine Mihalich, and Mark Stebbins are your attempt to replicate the sexual abuse and trauma inflicted upon you in your own childhood. They're your sacrificial lambs, both spared from the horror of growing up with such trauma and weaponized as punishment against the parental figure in general. You want to take from other parents their greatest achievement. You want them to fail as your own parents failed to protect you. You believe smothering the child is the most tender way to end their lives. You wash their bodies and lay them out in public, hoping to deny the terrible game you're playing. But you've erred. Someone knows who you are. You do. At this point, you are being pursued by a special task force devoted to your capture. You're being pursued by state police, by the district police of all communities surrounding Detroit, and by the FBI. It's for this reason that I'd like to help you in a way a doctor helps a patient. You need such help to stop what you're doing. You have a chance, right now, to achieve victory in a greater game. You can become a hero by way of being the only person who can stop you. 
a good effort, but would it actually stand a chance of affecting real change in the heart of a killer? The answer came to the task force quicker than they had expected. On April 4, 1977, Dr. Danto called the police with news. He had received an unexpected letter from someone who only called himself Alan. We'll read Alan's disturbing letter right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Now, the story continues. The task force had gotten their first clue after publishing Dr. Danto's letter and got to work analyzing it. The following account of the letter is direct from the source, with all of the strange phrasing and typographical errors included. Dr. Danto, I'm desperate, nearly gone crazy and haven't got no place left to turn. You must help me as there is no one else I can turn to. This is for real. I know who the killer is. I live with him. I am his slave. He whips me and beats me all the time. He will kill me if he finds out that I have written this letter. I have been with him in the car when we go out looking for boys, but I swear I have never, never, never been with him when he picks up the ones he killed. But I am just as guilty. No one can hear the children, gagged all the time. He has delivery route in Oakland and Birmingham places, but we live in Detroit. He's junked his gremlin in Ohio, never to be found ever. I tell you what makes him do it. In Vietnam, we there together, Frank and me. Oh, Frank, not his real name, I call him that here. Nam screw up your mind, Doc. You ever been over there? Tell you something else. He killed lots of little kids then with medals for it. Burned them to death. Bombed them with napalm. It's real beautiful there, Doc. He wants the rich people in Birmingham to suffer like all of us suffered to get nothing back for what we did for our country. He's not a monster like you think. He really loves children, especially that little girl for three weeks. Not doing it because he hates children, but doing it because he hates everybody else out there. But I cannot do it anymore. I know he is going to kill some more. I shouldn't never helped him but trapped. Too late. I am just as guilty. I feel like I want to die. I will turn him in if you will swear to help me. If you be real doctor, you must help me. You call it immunity. Frank says we will never be caught, but I am scared. There is no other hope. You tell me it be all right with code and Sunday papers. 
You do like your other letter. Say, Weather Bureau say, trees to bloom in three weeks. You make it say that. I know you got my letter. I mean, I can trust you. Please help me. This was addressed to your office? It's quite specific, Detective. He wanted me to read this, and he wanted me to act on it. So the task force let Danto act. What else could they do? Despite its fantastic nature, it was a viable lead. At this point, anything was. If they could prevent another abduction that seemed imminent, anything was worth it. Danto went back to the Detroit News and they let him alter the weather section, implanting the secret message that this Allen requested. Highs in the 70s are expected. If the warming trend continues, trees should be blooming in three weeks. The bait was laid. By April 11th, Danto had his answer, a call from Allen, recorded in Danto's home office. I want immunity. I want it by tomorrow night. You where Pony Cart Bar is? You be there tomorrow night at 9 with letter from governor giving me immunity. I give you Polaroid pictures proving he killed them. You be there. No police. I prove he killed them. That's all I say. From the intel gathered just from Allen's letter and call, the task force's specialist developed a profile. Based on his command of the English language and his manner of speaking, they believed he was of Latin descent. He seemed to have some sort of sexual relationship with this Frank, the supposed OCCK. Allen seemed to be from an impoverished background. In one of his messages to Danto, he described an apartment that seemed small and cramped. Perhaps the two key insights were that the killer had a delivery route, supporting the task force's long-held theory that the killer was someone who had a mobile job with a malleable schedule. Secondly, Allen claimed to watch over the children while the killer was out, lending more credence to the idea that this abductor could keep the children hidden while maintaining the appearance of a normal work schedule. And it was enough for Kreese, Robertson, and the rest of the team. What is that for? Dr. Danto, you want it in. So in you go, with a wire and all. This is what you wanted, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's my duty. He reached out to me, and this is what we wanted, isn't it? You tell me, Doc. While the doctor logically feared for his own safety, he ultimately did not back down. The task force would send one undercover cop with Dr. Danto into the gay bar known as the Pony Cart Inn. If Allen appeared, he would be immediately apprehended. Kreese and the rest of the team reckoned that if the suspect was in such a volatile mental state, along with Danto's cooperation, they could easily break him all the way, getting the identity they so desired. What'll it be? Uh, just a water for now. You got it. Eyes on Doc, at the bar, nothing yet. The evening at the pony cart passed slowly. Danto occupied his time speaking with the bartender, Clearly a nervous reaction, but one that upset his police handlers. Meanwhile, the undercover officer brushed off a man who approached him. The officer was later reprimanded. If a figure approached him, who knows if it might have been Alan, or even the elusive Frank. But the leaders of the task force didn't take this failure to heart. The undercover detective was doing his job, in their eyes, keeping watch over Danto. Either way, by the time night fell, Alan had not shown. He never would. Dr. Danto never received another communication from the mysterious informant again. 
The trail had gone cold, or as many skeptics on the forest believed, it had always been cold. Allen was a false lead drawn into the investigation by the celebrity power of Dr. Bruce Danto. Just some mentally unstable person who got wrapped up in Danto's plea to the killer, just like the police. Whatever the case was, Danto's lead was undeniably the last major one that the task force came across. 1978 was coming to a close, and funding was drying up. Despite Kreese and Robertson's best efforts, the task force was on its last legs. It wasn't as if it was a clear failure of operation. The task force hadn't done anything wrong. Not blatantly. They had done a lot right, assembling the biggest investigative team in U.S. history setting an organizational precedent for investigations that would soon follow in its wake, proving that cooperation between separate districts and departments in a complex metropolitan area was far from impossible. They also produced some valuable results in the immediate sense. Other child molesters were caught by chance during the investigations prying into the lives of those around Oakland County. The task force was also able to contribute evidence and investigatory work to a concurrent investigation in 1977, that of the North Fox Island child sex ring. North Fox was a small island in the middle of Lake Michigan, owned by the wealthy local Francis D. Sheldon. During this investigation, it came to light that his social program, Brother Paul's Children's Mission, was actually a front for a devious hideaway resort for pedophiles. Equipped with a runway for landing planes, Sheldon really utilized the island to cater to his and other wealthy pedophiles' desires, flying in young children to be abused from all over Michigan and beyond. No direct link was ever made between North Fox Island and the OCCK case, but remember it, this parallel case's significance is very important to this unsolved mystery. But in the eyes of the task force, or at least their superiors in the state government, none of this meant anything for the Oakland County child killer case. The trail was dead. So far, no more children had been abducted. They were willing to write this one off. The nightmare for those in power was over. In a sense, one couldn't blame them. After Danto's failed rendezvous with Allen, the task force fell back on some rather sketchy investigative tactics. Without physical leads, they spent their time in a conga line of psychiatrists who each offered their own psychological profiles. Interesting, but ultimately useless. At one point, a psychic was even brought into Oakland County and promptly expelled when he tried to directly contact the Kings and other grieving families. By December, the writing was on the wall. Robertson and Kreese packed up the task force's last headquarters, ironically, housed in an abandoned schoolhouse. Well, that's everything. It's been an honor, Captain Robertson. For God's sake, Joe, call me Rob. At least Robertson. So they're filling this school up next year, huh? Private school, maybe. At least it'll be put back into use. Too many buildings getting abandoned around these parts. It's best not to give up hope on everything. You think he's still out there? All I know, Joe, even if he never strikes again, for the rest of my damn life, I'll be keeping my eyes open. So will I, Rob. 1978 rolled into 1979. Then a new decade began. On and on the years rolled. And sure enough, the Oakland County child killer never struck again. But the damage was done, and the story 
was far from over. When the bodies of children stopped littering the highways, fear of the Oakland County child killer cooled and took on a new form, urban legend. Or as Barry King would later call it on his personal blog, detailing the history and evidence of the case and its aftermath, the OCCK became suburban legend. Whatever one calls it, it became less a subject for law enforcement and one for late night sleepovers, bar discussions, and eventually internet message boards. The unsolved nature, of course, meant that the loose end would forever be hanging open for whoever might be able to one day solve it. Or at least claim to have solved it. The highest echelon of Michigan law enforcement was more than happy to let the case and the failure of the task force slip away into history, even while the investigators most deeply invested were never able to forget. Indeed, it was thanks to people of the latter category, which also included the grieving families, friends, and neighbors from those horrible few years of the 1970s, that this case wasn't forgotten at all. The mystery persisted, and when the new millennium rolled around, potential answers began to surface. Alongside the internet, the rise of verifiable DNA testing, unavailable during the initial investigation, would stir the pot once again. But first, in 2005, there was Bob. Oakland County Chief Prosecutor's Office, who am I speaking to? Uh, hello? Just call me Bob for now, all right? Uh, I'm sorry, sir. What is the reason for your call? Maybe you've forgotten it, but I sure haven't. Forgotten what? The Oakland County child killer. I believe I know who it was. Excuse me, Mr. Bob. I'll be transferring you right now. That sure caught the attention of the current chief prosecutor, Jessica Cooper. The woman who followed in the steps of L. Brooks Patterson and Richard Dick Thompson from the 70s. Bob's call went through all right, and it was a doozy. In hindsight, it seems very familiar as well. Not only the details, but the method. Like Dr. Bruce Danto's near-catch, Alan, Bob was only a pseudonym with a promise. A risky proposition to any clear-thinking investigator. But after nearly 30 years of silence, any voice was worth listening to. Even one that seemed to be somewhat unhinged from reality. Bob told Oakland County investigators that he had a certain acquaintance in the 70s that suddenly seemed suspicious to him. Bob said that he would often take drives with this acquaintance, and Bob would be shown all sorts of weird abandoned places, empty warehouses, dilapidated buildings. Apparently, inside these places, the acquaintance participated in satanic rituals involving the sacrifice of human children. When asked if the acquaintance ever made any direct statements linking him to the Oakland County child killings, Bob said that they would also drive past the places where the OCCK bodies were found, and that his acquaintance seemed awfully familiar with these routes along the Woodward Corridor. Yet when asked for a name of this acquaintance, Bob hesitated. He wanted something else in exchange. Bob was particularly obsessed with getting his hands on more information on Allen's letter from 1977. After reviewing his statement, Prosecutor Cooper was not open to this possibility whatsoever. 
This supposed informant made a rambling statement outlining a theory that the Oakland County child killer abductions and murders were related to pagan holidays, the lunar calendar, and Wiccan rituals. Bob was routinely shut down by the prosecutor's office, and he refused to offer anything more up, including the name of his suspect, without access to the task force's investigative files. A vendetta of sorts was kicked off. Bob began contacting others involved in the OCCK trauma, including people like Deborah Jarvis, mother of victim Christine Mihalik. Bob told Deborah Jarvis and others that he was a member of a law enforcement team investigating the OCCK crimes. He told families of the victims that he had solved the crime, but doubted that the Oakland and Wayne County authorities were competent enough to trust his findings. The initial event of their connection is muddy, but there is some evidence that points to Bob hooking up with local attorney Paul Hughes through Deborah Jarvis. However it occurred, Bob found a match made in heaven with Hughes. Together, they mounted a campaign accusing Oakland County of obscuring the truth and mishandling the investigation from the start. A potential connection between the North Fox Island child sex ring and the Oakland County child killer was finally brought into the public sphere. After the North Fox Island case broke in 1977, it was always assumed by journalists and investigators that Francis Sheldon's dark operation was just a tip of an iceberg. An iceberg that could implicate many in the Michigan government who worked to keep Sheldon and his pedophile island getaway afloat. Michigan in the 1970s had a dark secret regarding child abuse. Prosecution against such actions hadn't yet reached maturity in the United States. So if one had the right allies, it was easy to keep under wraps. The tendrils would have stretched out far from North Fox Island and Francis Sheldon. After all, the kids on this island had to come from somewhere. By offering favors and protections to pedophiles statewide, those at the hidden peak of this ring could guarantee access to innocent victims. North Fox Island was a drop in the pond, and the ripples spread all across the state and even the country. Essentially, this points to the chance that whoever the Oakland child killer was, he was at the very least tangentially involved in this operation. Perhaps one of the lower tier pedophiles cultivated to help keep the wheels turning, a small timer that went rogue. But Bob and Hughes thrived off of spreading rumors like this outside of Oakland County's control. With this and other claims of misconduct, Hughes put together a lawsuit against the county officers for $100 million. Now this was fishy from the start. Hughes's website solicited donations to this campaign from day one and began offering up copies of Bob's report for 1500 bucks a pop. The families of those affected by the OCCK claimed to believe Bob and Hughes were manipulating their trauma for personal gain. By March 2012, the case was dismissed entirely. And while Bob may have been a liar from the start, the activity around the OCCK case would not die down in his wake. In fact, by the end of the first decade of the new millennium, the King family discovered the task force was back in operation. Not at the same scale as before, but alive and kicking nonetheless. Next, the accusations of Oakland County malfeasance came from a more trustworthy source the King family themselves. 
We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now, back to our story. The city of Detroit as we know it today was built by cars. While it has a blue-collar identity, companies like General Motors made a lot of people very wealthy and very powerful. One of these men was a GM executive named Harold Lee Bush. Also known as H.L. H.L. had a son, Christopher, raised in a privileged home with everything he could have asked for, monetarily at least. Back in the 70s, before things like this were openly condemned and prosecuted, Many people close to Chris knew he had a darker side. In the clearest possible terms, he was a pedophile. And in 2008, the King family learned a very disturbing fact. In 1977, Chris Bush had been taken in as a suspect by the Oakland County Task Force and put under the polygraph in regards to the murder of Mark Stebbins. Were you involved in the abduction of Mark Stebbins? No. Were you involved in the killing of Mark Stebbins? <laughs> no. According to then Chief Prosecutor L. Brooks Patterson, Chris Bush was exonerated. He was innocent when it came to Mark Stebbins. In November 1978, Chris Bush was found dead in his bedroom from apparent suicide by gunshot. Also found? A disturbing sketch of a child screaming in agony, dressed in clothes similar to those last worn by Mark Stebbins. Bush's suicide also coincides with the end of the OCCK killings. Whether or not he was the killer himself, it's conspicuous that his death marked the end of this reign of terror. And by the end of the year, the first era of the task force was shut down by the state. One has to question what really led to the reopening of the case in the 2000s, if the state really had something to hide. Perhaps with figures like Bob making such a public mess of things, there was no other choice. Either way, with DNA testing technology now prevalent, the new task force had a few more subjects beyond Bush. There was James Vincent Gunnels, a pedophile who had a terrible tie to one Christopher Bush. The police had a partial match of Gunnell's DNA, linking him to a hair found on the body of Christine Mihalik. 
They also soon discovered that, as a teenager, Gunnels was sexually abused by Christopher Bush at the Bush family's cabin on S Lake. But a partial match on Mihilic wasn't enough to sink Gunnels. His relationship with Bush, including the fact that it started out with Gunnels as a victim, indicates a connection to the larger pedophile ring in Michigan at the time. Perhaps both Bush and Gunnels were agents on the street for those who controlled the operation that involved North Fox Island. One of those confirmed to be involved in that despicable ring was the former blue-collar auto worker, Theodore Lamborghini. Caught in 2007, Lamborghini didn't hide the fact that he took part in sexual abuse against minors. Suspiciously, in fact, he pled guilty to 15 counts of sexual misconduct. All in order to avoid taking a polygraph relating to his possible involvement in the OCCK murders. Even when offered a reduced sentence, Lamborghini held steady. There was no way he would take a polygraph test related to those crimes. He wasn't involved. They had no proof to compel him to do so. But his refusal speaks just as loud as any polygraph might have. Lamborghini knew something, but he wouldn't give it up, even after 30 years. Finally, DNA testing put one final suspect up on the line, Archibald Sloan. Sloan was a notorious and known pedophile, even back in the 70s in Oakland County. He was questioned during the initial task force investigation, but there was no hard evidence to tie him down. After years of hanging on to hair samples found in his 1966 Pontiac Bonneville, DNA testing concluded they matched samples of both Mark Stebbins and Timothy King. While Robinson and Mihalik's hairs were not found, this is a connection too disturbing to let go. Yet, publicly at least, Oakland County prosecution did not pursue this any further. There is a chance an investigation is still ongoing behind closed doors, but no information has been made public. Sloan refused to speak on any involvement in the Oakland County child killings beyond denying he had anything to do with it. But some, like the King family, have other ideas. One thing that is known about Sloan is that he often lent his car out to others in his social ring. Other pedophiles, that is. His Pontiac could have served as the vehicle for countless abductions, be they in service of something like the North Fox Island ring or the Oakland County child killings. This Pontiac is what people like Barry King and his daughter Kathy are fixated on, because it fits with their theory that the police's obsession with the blue gremlin was misguided or intentionally falsified from the start. In Barry King's blog, A Father's Story, he writes that on the night of Timothy's disappearance, his other son, Chris, went out looking for him. When Chris King arrived at the market lot, the same lot that would later become known as the last place anyone ever saw young Timothy, he spotted a blue gremlin sitting in the lot. You see, Chris had a particular fascination with the car at the time, especially the special interior lining given to the blue additions. A few days later, when the King family saw that the gremlin had become such a fixation for the police's search, they had Chris give a statement regarding what he saw. It seemed logical in their minds that the gremlin Chris saw in the lot was most likely the same one the witness later gave as the abductor's vehicle, meaning that observation by the witness was probably a mistake. Yet still, the gremlin remained the focus. 
perhaps an unstoppable reaction after the media got a hold of it as an image for the case. To this day, Barry King and his family remain convinced it was more likely that another car, such as a Pontiac, was used as the abduction vehicle. Yet the King family were not in charge of the investigation. In fact, in between the 1970s and the turn of the new century, the King family heard nothing from those in the Oakland County offices. But the King family soon learned through access to the warrant on Bush after his death that the state police had hired three more polygraph experts to view Bush's test. And according to these three, despite what the Oakland County Prosecution Office made public, Bush did not pass with such flying colors. Kathy King also believes that there is an account out there that can verify Bush underwent a pre-polygraph interview, something historically offered only to those in very privileged places. In this interview, Bush had looser lips regarding his potential involvement in the OCCK crimes. Suddenly, Bush's supposed suicide begins to take on a more sinister shape. As the Oakland County prosecution continues to dodge around the King family's requests for more information on the current task force's investigation, the family becomes more convinced of a story of corruption and lies by the county. There is no doubt in their minds that Bush was involved in the Oakland County child killings, if not the killer himself. According to the police report on Bush's death, there was no gunshot residue present on his hands, a strange occurrence indeed if he shot himself. The size of the rifle and the lack of blood splatter recorded at the scene also indicate that it would have been very difficult for Bush to kill himself in this way. Here is where the major conspiracy element comes into play. Bush could have been murdered by officials with the connection to a larger statewide sex ring. Some theorize the police were involved in this ring as well, and that they could have easily executed Bush. To those who didn't want the investigation proceeding any further, Bush appeared to be the perfect fall guy. With his death, they might have thought the case could finally be closed. But his theoretical killers clearly did not know that he had already taken a polygraph and that Chief Prosecutor Patterson had decided Bush was innocent. The Kings relegate this to the fact that those who killed Chris also didn't understand who his father was. Even if Bush perfectly fit the profile for the Oakland child killer, proxy or not, someone like H.L. Bush was not going to let his family name be soiled like that. After all, a month after Bush's suicide, the first era of the task force was shut down. Perhaps those at the top realized what a mess had been made of it all. Any further meddling might risk revealing them as the men behind the curtain. On the edge of truth, the perfect time to pull the plug. If this conspiracy does hold water, whatever powerful force at its charge has made a big enough show of trying to close the case and had done enough damage to scare others who might have been involved like Gunnels, Sloan, or Lamborghini into permanent silence. The King family still holds on to the belief that Oakland County authorities have decided to sweep this under the rug. The only way they know how to keep hope alive is through their blogs, both Barry's A Father's Story and Kathy's personal blog. Both are full of detailed research and timelines, and yet neither can ever be sure of what actually happened. Only Oakland County can offer that. So, in the end, a lot of blood and ink has been spilled in the case of the Oakland County child killer. 
There's a lot of evidence and a lot of stories, from the mysterious, like Alan's, to the shady and manipulative, like Bob's. But none are quite as frightening as what the King family and others like them believe, that the true killer was always known and that the truth was hidden. What can we say about this? In our minds, the most realistic scenario is that all of this is intricately tied into the North Fox Island case and the horrible widespread child sex rings of Michigan in the 1970s. The existence of North Fox Island and its shady ties to elites in the Michigan community at the time clearly points to Christopher Bush as the killer. A wealthy man himself, there is a good chance Bush was known to Francis Sheldon and may have even visited North Fox Island at some point. To connect all of our threads, Let's say Bush borrowed Sloan's car for the abductions of Mark Stebbins and Timothy King, leading to the appearance of their hair in the Pontiac. Bush was no fool, though, so he didn't use the same vehicle for every abduction. James Vincent Gunnels could have accompanied Bush on one or more of these excursions, which is why his hair ended up on Mihalik's body. In that case, Gunnels might have even been the infamous Allen the companion of the Oakland County child killer. And finally, Bush either killed himself out of shame or fear, or was killed by those higher-ups in this infamous and hidden sex ring to be offered up as a scapegoat for all the others who committed similarly heinous acts. Yet Bush's name was spared in the end by his father's power, and the truth was forever lost to us and those who deserve it most. Whatever car pulled up alongside those four poor young souls in 1970 Oakland County, its brake lights have now been thoroughly obscured by the blizzard of time. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll investigate the mystery of the Beaumont children. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Jack Bantel and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Harris Markson, Nick Massu, Greg Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs> <laughs>